Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning. And today my guest is Michael Ostro, who is an Alexander Technique teacher who uh, teaches in the Union Square area of New York City and also in North Bergen, New Jersey. He's been teaching for over 20 years. He works with a wide variety of clients, including performing artists, athletes, people with chronic pain. And uh, he has also studied with uh, Carl Stowe, who is a very famous breathing and voice expert. And he is actually authorized to teach uh, Carl Stowe's uh, method. And uh, he, in, in that context, he has recently helped clients with asthma, obstructive pulmonary disease uh, to, to improve their breathing to a point where they no longer needed inhalers. And uh, we're going to talk today about um, the Alexander Technique and breathing and voice. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. Well, you know, um, Alexander, F. Matthias Alexander, the developer of our work, when he got to London in the early 20th century, uh, he became known in the press as the breathing man. And I believe that his early work focused very heavily on breathing, probably his later work too, but that was certainly something that, that stood out. Um, Maybe in that context, you could give, before we start talking about the connections between the Alexander Technique and, and, and breathing, if you could just provide a short description of the Alexander Technique for our listeners. Okay. Well, the Alexander Technique is um, a hands-on method that helps um, people to free themselves from habits that cause strain and tension and restriction and bring us towards what is really a more natural effortless way of, of being and moving and reacting yeah, so it's a very broad uh, approach to helping people mm -hmm. and and certainly in in terms of releasing or letting go of harmful muscular restrictions that's going to include restrictions that interfere with breathing which is after all a movement right there you got you got the ribs moving you got the diaphragm moving up, which is just a giant muscle moving up and down so it would make sense that if the alexander technique is good at helping people to release unwanted tension in general it would certainly it ought to be able to help them release unwanted tension that gets in the way of efficient breathing Right. I want to sort of give a general kind of picture uh, just to uh, give a con context to understand how breathing is affected by the technique. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a, maybe a little bit of a schematic picture, but I think it's useful. When we're born, we, our design is such that the spine and the postural muscles of the back provide the primary support of the body, so that it, what we call the axial skeleton, the head and spine. Are, are kind of what what starts what everything ties to. So we want to move or do whatever we do, that provides the the central axis of of support. Now, as people grow up, they start to interfere with this very fundamental pattern for various reasons, um, partially 
imitating parents and friends, partly uh, emotional traumas or sitting in front of TVs. But what happens is the, the, the spine and the, muscle, the postural muscles of the back cease to provide an integrated support. And we start using muscles that are really designed to use only intermittently for movement. And so, for example, we start using the ribs and the diaphragm to help support us, to help keep us stable. We start gripping the neck, the jaw, the throat, the tongue, everything in the body that's designed to be at rest when we're not moving starts to become enlisted for a support function. So we get this very imbalanced way of doing things where what's supposed to be supporting us is not working, what's supposed to be at rest most of the time is always working. And obviously our breathing is then affected. When people then try to work on their breathing or their voice or whatever, they are going to do it according to this very misguided scheme. So if any kind of breathing exercises or instructions are going to be filtered through this very unfortunate pattern of, of strain and tension. So from the Alexander point of view, the first thing we have to sort out the fundamental way people have organized themselves into kind of neuromuscularly and get the spine to do its work so everything else can calm down and, 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 and then the breathing mechanisms can work as they're designed to. So we can't start out by working on breathing as if there's nothing wrong with the entire way of coordinating ourselves. So we can do them kind of simultaneously, but we always have an eye in this fundamental pattern. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, just in, in, to elaborate on what you just said, a lot of people are, are surprised at how strong a muscle the diaphragm is, and it can easily be subverted yes. towards becoming a, a postural a, a support muscle. Or, exactly. Uh, and, um, of course, once that happens, uh, it, it's just simply not going to function it, as a breathing muscle anywhere near as efficiently as it's designed to. And one other thing to mention, this is where people's concepts come into play. They say, oh, then I should relax. And, and in practice, relaxation is a meaningless word. Most people respond to the idea of relaxing by just collapsing and yes. becoming kind of dead. So there's, there's, uh, there, within people's framework, there's no immediate answer to what to do. You, you need a, a whole different perspective, mm -hmm. which can be provided by Alexander Technique lessons and hands-on guidance. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that word relax, which, uh, as you say, has become, has its own meaning in the West now, pretty much synonymous with collapse that's a word that alexander technique teachers tend to stay away from and discourage people from using not because it didn't have the right meaning originally but right. but it has and i believe alexander even used the, the term for a while until, until things things around him changed and he realized that that was not a, a good word to use yeah right because the Alexander Technique is very practical. It's just whatever, if you use a word and you get a good response, it's a good word. But we just find in practice for most people that word creates not the response we're looking for. So we tend to be careful with it. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I, I assume you're, you're familiar with Al, the Alexander ideas about body mapping, for example. Yeah. Which, uh, just to explain to our listeners, I guess you, we could call body mapping a kind of a subset or offshoot of the Alexander Technique. And it's basically just 
knowing on yourself where certain basic uh, joints and muscles are and how they function. It's very simple anatomy, but it's anatomy uh, first. It's it, it's not anatomy at a distance. It's anatomy where you know on yourself where things are and how they they function. And and I would think I would imagine, or certainly it's my experience also that. One of the greatest mismaps that people tend to carry around with themselves, or some of the greatest mismaps, have to do with breathing, such right. as where is the diaphragm and how right. does it function, and right. even where are the ribs right. and how do they function. Do you, do you want to talk right. a little bit about that? Yeah. I, I, uh, what a lot of people do, first of all, in practice when they breathe is what Alexander called lifting the, the chest and collapsing. Mm-hmm. They they kind of tighten the ribs, pull them up, and then drop them down. Now the 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 um, rib cage and the um, lungs are sh- sort of shaped like a pyramid. The narrowest part is on the top, and the widest part of the, is in the bottom. So in terms of uh, efficiency, a small movement at the bottom of the rib cage gets a lot more volume exchange of air than the top. Mm-hmm. So all this lifting and squeezing of the ribs gets very little work done for a, I mean very little. Um, effective work for a lot of uh, output of energy. So it, it's a very efficient way, of, uh, inefficient way of breathing. So what some of the things to bear in mind to think differently about it is, first of all, the ribs attached to the spine in the back. And they're designed so that the, the lower ribs are designed to swing primarily laterally sideways and the upper ribs more up and down. So um, when breathing is efficient, and the diaphragm goes right across the middle of the body, under the rib cage. It's a big kind of dome. And there's a certain pattern of breathing when it's working as it's designed. So when you, um, uh, let's say, when you exhale, the diaphragm has is, is got to create more room to draw the air in. So it's domed up and it starts to pull down and flatten. You mean when you inhale? I'm sorry, when you, in, when you inhale. Mm-hmm. So, when you're, when you're, uh, so as you're inhaling, the diaphragm is flattening. What, what happens is it starts to push against the uh, abdominal contents, and, and that prevents the center of the diaphragm from continuing down. So what it then does is the contraction pulls on the side ribs where the diaphragm attaches and swings them sideways. So that, that's the movement, the sort of primary simple movement that should happen when breathing is working as it's designed. And so there's a lot of sideways movement and backwards movement, and very little in the front. Now, sometimes when people um, try to breathe more deeply, they, they think they should breathe into the belly, and in effect, they kind of suck the air in and push their stomach out. That really does not motivate the diaphragm to work as it's designed to. It just recruits a small area of the front of the diaphragm, and it's not very efficient. So. Another feature, I mean, this, I don't want to get too technical if you think this is too much. But, well, uh, no, but just to elaborate on that yeah. for a second, I mean, an awful lot of uh, singers, for example, have ideas about where their diaphragm is That's, located that are just right. simply wrong. Yes. And uh, tip, often they'll kind of identify it with their, lower, with their belly. Yes. And, um, of course, 
if you think that's where it is, you're going to try to breathe as though right. it were there, and that's not going to lead to very good breathing. Right. Um, but I, I think it's very interesting. And, of course, that's in the front of our bodies. That's right. And as you just, I believe what you just said was that most of the actual movement of the diaphragm muscle is towards the rear. Right. There's attachments to the diaphragm to the spine mm-hmm. and to the, the back of the ribs. So that, so the, the movement really, it, we're sort of like a fish with gills. A lot of it is sideways and back. And in fact, one of the things I sometimes do to help people experience it is they put them in a child pose, the yoga pose where you kind of kneel and lie on your legs. Mm-hmm. And that blocks the ribs and the stomach from moving forward to a large degree and it kind of rounds the lower back. Mm-hmm. So they get an experience if you picture, or just lying on your stomach, if you mm-hmm. picture that, you can see, picture the rib cage with its uh, t- attaching to the spine and, and kind of moving, the back moving sideways and letting the air waft up the spine in the back. That's really the image we should have rather than this heaving in the front of the body. So mm-hmm. the front has to gradually quiet down. And, and this, again, this is part of this pattern of the spine assuming its proper role. The spine supports the ribs. The ribs are sort of hanging from the spine. And the movement happens primarily from the back. There, are some, there is some muscle in the front, but the, the, the axis of movement happens uh, from the spine. So it's a very different um, pattern than most people uh, imagine. And, and if, if someone is not organizing themselves in that way, then any kind of breathing exercise or vocal exercise is, is, is kind of restricted in its effectiveness because it's being done in, in the context of overall misuse of the body. Right. Now, now, one of the ways I work in practice to help people get a different idea, there's, there's a lot of issues. Um, let, let's say one thing that I often do is, is to work on the exhale. Alexander had the, what he called the whispered ah, but you can do different kinds of things. But basically, you have someone exhale and then just wait for the inhale rather than taking it. Because most people focus on getting more breath in. And the problem often is there's too much breath. It's as if you're holding the breath all the time and you never really let it out. So the first thing is to let air out and really uh, wait and allow. And th- this is the fundamental change to learn to let breath happen rather than to do it. Mm-hmm. And until you can um, have some understanding of that, if, you're, if you sing or you play a, a wind instrument, there, people are convinced they have to take a big breath and really heave to get enough breath. And uh, they need to back off and spend some time exploring how to allow the breath in and how to have it happen in this different way, much more efficient. And um, that, that's, that's you know, how we, we kind of start doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe it's the case, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that insight <clears throat> owes a lot to Carl Stow, right? Well, it, it does. I mean, I, uh, Carl Stout talked a lot about the importance of the exhale. I mean, Alexander did too. He, he mm-hmm. may not have gone into as much detail. Um, Carl Stout was very clear about the pattern, what he called breathing coordination, the, the pattern of how the ribs and diaphragm should work. And, and his work attempts to, uh, we, we have different approaches, but basically someone lies down on a table and um, the Carl Stout or, or a teacher of his method 
will use their arms and hands to help extend the exhale further by pressing down the ribs and the stomach to get the, the diaphragm to go up higher and get a more complete exhale. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the meantime, the student is either, uh, what Carl Stow used to do is have people count out loud, mm-hmm. so they're using their voice, but you can do different things. You can have them just you know, exhale in a, like on a hiss breath or whatever, any, any kind of way to get the breath to come out further. And then you can coax the ribs to, to uh, relax down more, mm-hmm. particularly the front, and then the diaphragm will thereby go up higher. Mm-hmm. And then the next breath will have, have a bigger exchange of air since there's been a release of that held breath. Mm-hmm. I, and I think an, another way of thinking about, about that is that just the, I guess we could call it the physics or the biomechanics of it, that if you haven't let all the air in your system out, then when you breathe in, you're, you're gonna, you simply aren't going to be able to take in as, as much exactly. fresh air. That's right. Oxygen. And, um, yeah, and, and, and that, um, that insight, I think, is very helpful for people in terms of when some, that whole phrase, take a deep breath. Right. Uh, which you'll hear over and over again. I mean, that's a kind of a standard mantra almost. Um, and I think it's a shame because I think given the mechanics of the situation, you don't ever really need to take. It, it takes sort of suggests grabbing at something. Yeah, and it's, it's a very deep thing. It's, it's sort of, uh, you know, when you realize you don't have to take a deep breath, you're in effect trusting your breathing mechanisms and you're letting go of this grasping, anxiety-driven attitude that so many people have. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's more than just a physical thing. Ultimately, it's a very it's a different attitude, mm-hmm. uh, which very few people really get to have with ordinary teaching methods because they're always being taught to do something more mm-hmm. instead of to really do do less of this habitual way of breathing. Right. And I wanted to say also, you know, to continue about when we're talking about breathing, the the voice is very related to breathing, and I've sometimes found that. Um, I often find that singing, just very simple vowel sounds, can help people understand their breathing because in order to sing, you really have to let the throat and palate and jaw and tongue all get kind of open up more. And so I found a kind of a very startling experience for people is that I get them to open their jaw, which is, takes some doing, but I get them to rele- release their jaw so that their skull is... is kind of mapped, you could say in the mapping language, as skull and jaw as jaw, so there's no holding between them. Mm-hmm. And then I have them sing the vowels E-A-R-O-U and try to get them to not move their jaw at all. And most people are convinced they must tighten their jaw and throat in order to, to change the pronunciation. So they, they gradually learn that their jaw can be completely uninvolved. And it gives them a, a different experience of their skull. It's almost as if they sing through their skull. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that experience of the skull being kind of above and free from the jaw is part of the way one needs to be to breathe. Because when people are breathing, they're often tightening their, their throat and, and sort of sucking at the air. 
And the idea that their face and throat and skull can be very open and uninvolved is, is so foreign to people. But I, I do find often that just that singing vowel sounds can, can get across a very different experience of what that's like. And then they can go back to, you know, working on their breathing with this different attitude that they stay really uninvolved in trying to manufacture the breath. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I do. I think most people really have no idea of, of the relationship between their head and their jaw, not to mention the relationship of their head to their neck, which is, of course, what Alexander right. teachers are, are always on about. Um, I want to say yeah. just one thing that, you know, in theory, if someone studies the Alexander technique, their understanding of their breath and voice would follow. But in, in practice, it, it takes a certain development uh, and some work to sort of really experience how head spine relates to your voice and your breathing. So uh, it's, it's not intellectually, it may seem obvious, but it becomes very obvious as an experience if someone um, spends time with it. And it, it just takes some time and exploration, but then it becomes really obvious how fundamentally, if you do work with what Alexander's principles are of, of, of uh, learning how to awaken this pattern of the spine supporting you with the head freely poised on top, that that is the condition, the best condition for voice or breathing. Mm-hmm. And, but you need to go through practical experiences to get to the point of that uh, understanding. Absolutely. And you also, uh, in my experience, um, especially if you're a trained singer, need to suspend judgment a little bit about what it sounds like because I, right. I've, I've noticed that uh, you could work with a singer and, and uh, get them to free up that whole head, neck, jaw area and out comes this amazing sound um and the singer's first reaction could often be something like uh it doesn't seem like real singing to me right because uh the effort that they have associated with singing is is has is dissipated a bit and so it's almost as though it's not legitimate right uh and that's one one advantage I found in working with singers to have at least one or two other people around who can give them feedback besides right. besides me because uh, it, it it is pretty amazing how someone can produce an absolutely fantastic sound that but in a way that they're unfamiliar with and and discount it in a sense. Yeah, well, that's so, one of Alexander's um, ideas about our kinesthetic sense becomes. Um, debauched, it, we, we, we have very inaccurate ideas of what we're doing, and we, we learn to expect a certain amount of effort in order to recognize that we're doing something, like singing or whatever, walking, moving. So w- without that sense of effort, we often think we're not, we're not doing the, the, um, the activity correctly. So that, that's, again, something that's so great about a uh, kind of hands-on technique, that you can get across something mm-hmm. that changes someone's idea their, their concept of what kind of effort they need. Yeah, I think Al, one of Alexander's great insights is that what we think we're doing or what we feel we're doing right, what we feel. Uh, are often quite sharply at variance right. with, with the reality. Uh, Michael, is there anything else you want to add? I think we're kind of getting towards uh, the end of our podcast. Mm, if there's anything I mean, else... We could go on for hours, but I, I think we, you know, we covered some basic ideas about it. Oh, I, I did want to add that um, 
as you mentioned in the beginning, I, I recently started working with a number of people with really uh, bad breathing problems, and I hadn't done it before, I mean, the last few, few years. And I've been quite amazed that um, uh, some people with asthma, that their breathing can quiet down very quickly, and they can get off inhalers. And I had someone with um, spasmodic dysphonia, which is this um, uh, strangled voice that comes from very, very bad breathing and all kinds of bad patterns with the voice. And also, she was diagnosed with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, mm -hmm. severe. And again, you know, it, it's a few months, her, they did the actual breathing test, and it was down to mild chronic obstructive, and she doesn't need the inhaler. And eventually, I think it will go away. So a lot of the names that people have for these disorders, from an Alexander point of view, they're just bad habits. They're, not, they're really not a kind of syndrome. We just, we just right. look at them as a set of habits that we can change. They're bad habits that manifest in a certain way and get categorized right, by cat that way of manifestation. Exactly. exactly. Right. And then they think there's mm -hmm. a thing, and then they, they need to be treated with all kinds of horrible uh, medications. Right, right. Well, um, if, if what uh, Michael and I have been talking about today intrigues you and you live in the New York City area uh, or in North Bergen, New Jersey area, contact uh, Michael. Uh, we'll put a link to his website by the interview. If you live anywhere else in the world, we'll put a link to a website that will enable you to find a teacher, in, an Alexander teacher in your area. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Robert. That was fun.